Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. You do him good as he gives out today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Paul. Morning, everyone. Morning online. Great to have you with us as well. We're continuing our series looking at the life of David. And I'm going to whistle through a significant period in his life quickly to get to where I want to. You remember, we left David. Uh, Saul knew the spirit of the Lord had departed from him and was with David. And Saul was jealous. And Saul was afraid. And Saul tried to kill David twice. And David went on the run. And Saul pursued him. And the next four years, seven years maybe, David is on the run from here to there. I can show you the map. It goes all over the place. He goes into Philistine territory, would you believe, after he's killed Goliath. But he takes refuge with the Philistines, and Saul's pursuing him. And this goes on until Saul is killed in battle with the Philistines. And then the Lord says to David, David, it's time. Go back. And David goes back, and the house of Judah anoints him as king. But that's only the house of Judah. That's only half the story because there's 12 tribes of Israel. There's more than that. So let's pick up the story. Let's read from 2 Samuel 5. 2 Samuel 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. They said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah, seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you'll never get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David can't get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So this is the moment where finally God's promises to David come true and David can begin to fulfill God's calling on his life. All the tribes of Israel, whom he's been fighting for years, has been a civil war for years, seven years. They come from at Hebron, just like the house of Judah had already done. David doesn't go to them making demands. They come to him and say, we want to make you our king. See, they know the truth. They can say it now that Saul's son and the army commander are dead. We know it was always you, David, that was responsible for the victories we had because God was with you. We heard what Samuel said all those years ago. We know you are called by God to be the shepherd and the ruler of Israel. So just like Judah, we want to have you as our king too. But even that isn't enough. Not, not quite yet. 
Because about 12 miles north of Hebron, there's a city called Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us twice in Joshua and Judges that when the tribes of Israel came to take the land of Canaan that God had given them, they were never able to dislodge the Jebusites from Jerusalem. This fortified city was a stronghold. And even though it was in Israel's territory, as we read in verse 6, the Jebusites, this Canaanite tribe, still lived there and were in control of it. So there's still this one bit of unfinished business for David. He can't say he's fully king as God intends until he's dealt with Jerusalem. So they march off, and against all the odds, they take this impregnable city, and David makes it his capital. He builds up the city area. He calls it the city of David. And the text says in verse 10, he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. And then something remarkable happens. Apparently on his own initiative, a foreign king, King Hiram of Tyre, a neighbor of Israel, 75 miles to the north, He sends this whole workforce of builders. They all arrive and they're bringing their own logs with them. And if you're part of our cedars group here at King's Church, you'll be glad to hear this, you see. Because these are cedar logs. These are cedars of Lebanon. They're the strongest, the most enduring trees of biblical times. They're top quality building wood. That's why they brought them with them. Because they were the best. So let's hear it for the cedars. And Hiram's men built a palace for David in Jerusalem. And then, then at last, it seems David can finally say to himself, that's it. I've been anointed twice, Judah and Israel. The civil war's over. I've captured Jerusalem. I've sorted out those Jebusites at last. I've built my capital, which now bears my name. I've even got a palace. And the text goes on to say he settles down in Jerusalem. He takes more wives. He has more children. Domestic life. Peace. All done. Made it. Top dog. So how would you feel? How would you feel to be King David at this moment? What would you be thinking? We know how Saul felt when he was made king before David. Saul, who was plagued with insecurity. Saul, who was small in his own eyes. He was so scared, you remember, he went and hid among the baggage at his own coronation so they couldn't find him. We know how David's son Solomon felt as well when he succeeded him. How do you do that? How do you follow the greatest king of all? Solomon was sufficiently daunted by the job description that when God spoke to him at the beginning of his reign, he said, Solomon, ask me for whatever you want. Solomon replied, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? It's a good answer, Solomon. Well, this is how David felt, verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. He wasn't scared like Saul. He wasn't daunted like Solomon. And he wasn't arrogant like Nebuchadnezzar, who looked out over his royal palace in Babylon in Daniel 4 and congratulated himself on his own power and majesty so that God said, "Uh uh-uh, no, you don't, Nebuchadnezzar. I gave this to you, and now I'm taking it away again until you learn who's really in charge. Who's the one who sets kings up and brings them down? But David knew that already. David knew. He knew that it was God who had established him as king. It wasn't anything he'd done for himself. Who was he? He was a nobody. The youngest of eight in a farming family. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock, God says to him later on. 
God took him from the sheep pens, it says in Psalm 78. David, you were nothing until God got hold of you. Absolutely agree, David would say. At every turn, you see, God had elevated him and given him success. Saul came and sought him out at God's command. A servant of Saul fingered him to have him brought to the royal court when Saul wanted a musician. Goliath, well, David just happened to come on the scene at the right moment. David knew it wasn't his own power that had directed that slingshot, just bullet smack on target. That wasn't just him. You could go on and on right through the book of Samuel. David knew beyond any question. Ever since that first day when Samuel came to call, he knew it was God who had called him, that God had been with him, that it was God who had protected him again and again from harm, God who'd opened every door, God who'd made everything possible. And because he knew he was secure and confident, but he was also humble and obedient. As first Judah and Israel come to him and say, be our king. And then Hiram says, do you know what, David? I'd like to build you a palace. And as David looks out over his palace in his city, he knew this is what God has done, not me. And I want to tell you, whatever good things you have in your life, this is what God has done, not you. Your house, your job, your money, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your skills, your abilities, your hobbies, your brains, your, your physical strength and health, your temperament. It's all a gift from the hand of God. James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. It's from the Father. Deuteronomy 8.17, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he that gives you the ability to produce wealth. What a great verse that is, hey, Nebuchadnezzar? I used to think saying grace before a meal was a bit legalistic, you know, some sort of routine prayer you have to say before you eat. Now I think it's a very healthy thing to remember, to acknowledge in the words of Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to you. You give them food at the proper time. You're the one who does it, Lord. However it comes, you're my provider. I depend on you. You're the one who opens your hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. Take away your hand of blessing, Lord, and I'm sunk. As David prays in 1 Chronicles 29, everything comes from you. And when we give to you, we are only giving that which has first come from your hand. To remember that is a very healthy corrective to our thinking. And it's true about the course of our lives as well. James also tells us, listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to that city or this city, we'll spend a year there, we'll carry on business, we'll make a pot of money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this and do that. Anything else, he says, is just arrogant boasting. Proverbs 69, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. You see, the truth is, God is far more involved, far more hands-on, far more present in the things of our lives than we normally realize. He's the one who sustains all things by his powerful word. That's Hebrews. That's an active process. God is fully engaged. He hasn't just set the universe running and then sat back to watch it. No, no. He's the one who makes sure the sun comes up every day because he tells it to. He's not just 
the designer. He's also the overseer of everything, including David's life and his calling, including your life and mine. So when things go well for us, be sure that we give him the thanks as David did. And when we're in need, be sure that we look to him. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for he, God, is our refuge. That's Psalm 62, a psalm of David. But in all our ways, acknowledge him. That there's a God in heaven. That we're not simply left to the chances of life. That he is both our provider and our help. And that like David, our lives are in his hands. And then, like David... He will direct our paths. That's Proverbs 3. From life's first breath to final cry, we sing, Jesus commands my destiny. Every day of this life, as well as the life to come. So David knew that God had called him. He knew that God had now established him as king in fulfillment of that calling. And that it started here. Because, of course, he wasn't called to become king, to get to the top of the tree. That wasn't the point. The point was to be king, to rule well before the Lord and over his people. So this chapter 2 of Samuel 5, it's not the end. Hooray, at last I'm king, I fulfilled my calling. It's just the start. Well done, David. You've made it to the starting line. And verse 5 tells us, in Jerusalem, David ruled over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. And David's reign that of his son Solomon after him. This was the high point of Israel's fortunes from the moment they first crossed the Red Sea and the Jordan, the moment they came out of Egypt into the promised land that God was giving them until the coming of Christ and the ushering into the new covenant. This is the high point. This is as good as it ever gets for Israel. And I said last week we would look at this idea of calling and how it applies to us today. I said last week, every Christian has the calling of God upon their lives. If faith decides, as we trust and pray she will, to follow Jesus, she will discover God has a calling on her life. Now, you could unpackage that in many ways. You could rightly say that the call of God in your life is to fulfill what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As Jesus said, there is no commandment greater than these. So this must be the call of God. You could say the call of God was Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you except this? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That must be the call of God. Or this. We make it our goal to please him, writes Paul in 2 Corinthians. Or 2, people, 2 Peter 3, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Those both sound like the call of God to me. Or we could simply say, the call of God is as Jesus said to the first disciples. As he said to Peter after the resurrection, follow me. Doesn't matter about anybody else, Peter, you must follow me. So the first point I'm making is simply this. You don't need to have any grand and personal calling on your life. Look at me, this is my calling. You already have all the calling you need. The point of life is to love him, to please him, to obey him, to live holy lives. That must come first. And that is enough for any of us. Second point about your calling my calling. Big capitals for this one. It's not about you. 
Your calling is not about you doing well, you achieving, you being recognized, you getting a name, having a bigger ministry. Your calling is not a kind of sanctified version of some self-realization program. Be the best you. Achieve your true potential. Find fulfillment through spiritual success. It's not about you. Go back to verse 12, 2 Samuel 5 that we read. David knew the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. You hear those last seven words? David wasn't king as a reward for having a heart after God's heart. He was made king for the sake of God's people, to rule them well, to lead them to follow God's commands, to turn them constantly towards God so that they would please him and they would be blessed as a result. He was king to shepherd them as he had shepherded the flocks as a boy, to keep them safe from danger, to pasture them in righteousness because God's people are precious to him. It was for their sake, not for his sake. See, if you lead a small group, say, it's not about whether you do it well, whether everybody says you're a good leader. It's not about whether you feel you had a good evening, even if you were really anxious about it, even if you did a rubbish job. That's not what matters. Were the people encouraged? That's what matters. If you've got any sort of ministry at all, it's for them, not you. Ephesians 4, Paul writes, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Ah, my calling. Right, here we go. So what does he say next? Next words, be completely humble. Oh, be patient. Bear with one another. Keep the unity of the spirit. Oh, right. And then when he does get on to talking about ministries a few verses later, he makes it very clear what the point of them is, to build up the body of Christ. So we all become mature. The body grows, builds itself up in love. It's about the body, the result of the ministry, not the ministry itself. If you have a calling, then I promise you, it's not about greatness, it's all about serving. Jesus said that's the only way to greatness anyway. He who is greatest among you is he who serves. But having said that, if we have got that in our hearts first, our primary calling is to live the Christian life well. Anything we are called to do is for the benefit of others, not for ourselves. Having got that, it is nevertheless true, God does have specific plans for our lives. There are paths that we as individual children of God are called to walk that are unique, that are tailored just for us. We are God's handiwork, Paul writes in Ephesians, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. That is true. So even though I'm wary of the sort of self-centered thinking that can come when we talk about my calling, let's have a look anyway. Firstly, your calling doesn't have to be something in the church or even something explicitly Christian. I believe I'm called by God to this role that I've now adhered in this local church for just over two years. I believe that. But equally, I believe that for the last 37 years, I've been called to my office in Chorley Wood to my work there as an accountant to serve clients and colleagues and bosses well. It's my 37th anniversary this week. Now, most certainly... During that time, I've also been called by God to be a husband who loves his wife and gives himself up for her, as Paul writes in Ephesians. Called to be a father who loves his three children and points them towards Jesus. Like the rest of us, I've sometimes done it well, I've sometimes not done it well. But that has been my call, and there's no more important call. 
also like the rest of us. I've been called to serve in church in various ways in that time. Maybe you wouldn't describe it as my ministry or my calling, but I know we have all been called to serve. And a servant doesn't usually get to pick or choose too much. He just gets on with it. I also have one particular friend that I felt called to be a friend to over 40 years ago, and we're still friends now. That calling continues. And many of you would say the same thing. It may be more than that. You may feel you have a very clear God-given call in a specific way. It may be in church, yes, of course. But it may be in secular employment. It may be running a business or in the caring professions, in politics, scientific research, charitable work, in your community, amongst your family, amongst your friends. Any of these and more can be the call of God at a particular time in your life or indeed your life's call. And for some of you, it will be a particular call to Christian ministry or service. But the point is, none of these is lesser or greater than any of the others. They're just different. But let me finish with some words, specifically for those who do feel a sense of the call of God on their lives to serve him within the, the church in the broadest sense. Even if you might not quite know what it means or how it will work out, this is something I know a little bit about. Let me say a few things. Firstly, you have to be patient. You may think you're ready. You may be raring to go. God may say, whoa, 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 son. There's a few things you have to learn first. Artie Kendall is fond of quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the worst thing that can happen to a man is to succeed before he is ready. See, like David, you may hear the call of God. Like David, it may be many years before you come into it in its fullness. There was probably 15 years between Goliath and his anointing as king in the chapter we've just read. Half of that time he was a fugitive on the run in the wilderness in foreign lands. Half of the time he was at war. It was neither quick nor easy. But there's a verse in Isaiah 60. In its time, I will do it swiftly, says the Lord. I find that to be true. You can wait many years, but when God's time comes, wow, suddenly it's there. You haven't had to lift a finger. But God's time won't come until you're ready because he's both too wise and too kind for that. Secondly, while you are waiting, God will be at work in your life. He'll be teaching you. He'll be preparing you. He'll be drawing you closer to himself. See, we constantly read of David. He inquired of the Lord. He kept close to God. He asked God. God was his constant reference point. The wilderness is never for nothing. In my second year at university, I met people from this church. I even came to this church occasionally. I was exposed to things of the Holy Spirit for the first time. This was all that I was hungry for. And I grew quickly. I grew up like that. But in the third year, those friends had left. Spiritually, I was on my own. Now, listen, while I, I hesitate to compare that time to David's years in the wilderness, there's no comparison, but this much is true. In that year and the year that followed, I was thrown on to God himself. I pressed into him. I spent time seeking him. I tried to hear his voice. And I know that in that year, what had grown quickly upwards grew outwards and became stronger. And I'm so grateful for that year. Thirdly, while you are waiting, don't just wait, but wait well. Grab hold of the now things. Don't just wait for the tomorrow things because this is part of your preparing too. David's years in the wilderness were always spent either running for his life 
or actively fighting Israel's enemies. He was never passively waiting to be king. My mum was no Bible basher, but there is one verse I remember she constantly quoted to me from Ecclesiastes. I had to look it up to find where it was. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So keep yourself spiritually strong and active while you await God's time. Serving God and loving people. Fourthly, trust God. There will be times when you hear his voice. You feel his presence clearly. You'll know you're on the right course. There will be many other times where you feel nothing. You have to remind yourself constantly of what God may have said to you. You have to exercise your faith because God will certainly allow it to be stretched for your own good. But if you are on God's path, there will always be times of encouragement. There will be people who will encourage you, whether they know it or not. Jonathan came to David in the desert when he heard Saul was coming to kill him. 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan helped him find strength in God. You shall be king over Israel, he reminded him. Saul himself confessed to David in chapter 24, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Abigail said the same. You see, if you really have heard God, he is really leading you. And even though there may be hard times before you get there, he will encourage you by his spirit and give you what you need to persevere, to hang in there. Fifthly, never be tempted to take matters into your own hands to make it happen. David had two chances in his wilderness years when all he had to do was lift his hand and Saul would be dead. There you are, he's king. No way, he said. I'm not laying a finger on him. If God has really called you, you can be sure he will make it happen. You don't need to. More than that, he won't make it happen until you have finally given up any hope of influencing it yourself. But the great thing is that when your moment does finally come, like David in chapter 5, then you will know that it is God who has done it. And like David, that knowledge will give you great strength. Two things to close. You may feel I'm called by God, but I've messed it up got some things to say about that. I'm not going to say it now. If that's you, get in touch with me because I haven't got time now, but there's something I would say to you. If you think that's you, God called me, but I've messed it up. I've blown it. Get in touch. But this is what I want to say to close. There's always a temptation to wrestle with God's calling. We want something different or something bigger or better. We want to be like him or like her. The trouble is that will get us nowhere except to forfeit the joy we could have found in doing for him and doing well what he has called us to do. So you can read all the books, you can go on all the courses, but if God hasn't called you and gifted you to be an evangelist or a pastor or a worship leader, then it's never going to work and you'll never find any joy in it. The clay has to submit to the potter, not the other way around. Artie Kendall says, I recognize daily that God has assigned me my calling and my future and I would be a fool to argue with him. You see, you'll only find the joy that God intends for you by doing the things he asks of you. And certainly, aspire to work hard, make the most of everything he's entrusted to you. You also have to accept the limitations of what Paul calls the measure of faith that he has apportioned to you. That can mean both what you can do and also how much, how big you can do it. You may be a pastor of a hundred, but you'll never be a pastor of a thousand. You may be a preacher to fifty, but never five thousand. The big stage may never be yours. 
And if he hasn't first equipped you to handle it, then that's a great mercy. But here's the thing, you see. God isn't looking at how many or how much, but how. He's not looking at numbers and size. He's looking at faithfulness. Faithfulness is the currency of the kingdom. That is how God measures you, not by numbers. A faithful pastor of 50 is far greater in God's eyes than a not-so-faithful pastor of 5,000. The numbers don't matter to God. That's simply a different calling. As with David, this is where we came in, God is looking at your heart. That's what matters. You remember the parable of the talents in Matthew? The one who was faithful with five, the one who was faithful with two, they got exactly the same praise. And praise for what? Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. Their faithfulness was the same. The praise was the same. The reward was the same to share the master's happiness. The amount which he himself had predetermined by what he gave them to work with, the amount was immaterial. All that matters for us is that we fully embrace whatever God has called us to do. And absolutely literally, whether it's cleaning toilets or leading churches, it literally makes no difference. Fully embrace it. Do it faithfully. And then we will fully please him. No more, no less than anybody else who's done the same. And the wonderful thing is, as much as he can do it without it turning our heads, he will even allow us the greatest satisfaction in life of all, which is to share a little of his joy. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you and we recognize today that in your grace and kindness you have called us. Called us to walk with you, to follow you, and called us for things that you've equipped and designed us to do uniquely. Father, I pray in these moments you'd help us now to agree, to align our will with yours, to say, Lord, you are right. You're the potter, I'm the clay. I'll walk in your paths. Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.